Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Dr. Thelma Reyna is an author, poet, and the founder and editor-in-chief of Golden Foothills Press, a micro-indie literary book press. A native of Kingsville, Texas, Thelma met and fell in love with her late husband at Texas A&I University, now Texas A&M Kingsville, and they soon moved their young family to Pasadena in search of better teaching opportunities as they were both educators. In addition to earning her undergraduate and master's degrees from Texas A&I, she went on to receive another master's degree from Cal State LA and her PhD in Educational Administration from UCLA. Following a 34-year career in public school teaching and administration, Thelma founded Pasadena-based Golden Foothills Press in 2014 to foster and support new voices and established authors and to cultivate multicultural literary diversity. Thelma is an author and poet in her own right, having written six books and served as the editor to three more, earning collectively 20 national book awards. As poet laureate in Altadena from 2014 to 2016, she edited the Altadena Poetry Review Anthology in 2015 and 2016. Her latest full-length poetry collection, Dearest Papa, is a memoir dedicated to her late husband of 50 years, and she served as a contributor and the editor of the recent anthology, When the Virus Came Calling, COVID-19 Strikes America. So, without further delay, my conversation with Dr. Thelma Reyna. Thelma, thank you so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much, James, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So with a lot of my guests, I love to start at the very beginning, as I think our own personal histories play so much of a role in who we are. So you were born and raised in Kingsville, Texas, a small town of about 25,000 people outside of Corpus Christi, but you made your way to Pasadena after graduate school. Can you share a little bit more about your background and the role of education and literature has played in your early life? Wonderful question. Yes, uh, every, everything you said so far is, is is spot on. I was a dusty little town. I, you know, might even have been a little less than twenty five thousand, but uh, but it was it was a small little nondescript town, uh, so called bedroom community. We didn't have any museums or any cultural or. Uh, major claims to, to fame for any reason whatsoever. I was one of nine children. My uh, my parents uh, did not have a, a high school a di- diploma. In fact, my father uh, dropped out of high school when he was in junior high. He was born and raised in Laredo, Texas. He dropped out of, uh, out of junior high, ran away from home, ended up joining the Navy as, as soon as he was old enough to do that, 16, 17, or whatever it was at that time during the Second World War. My mom uh, was a, a star scholar, I found out, not too, too many years ago. I never knew it. And uh, she dropped out uh, before finishing her, her diploma, and they got married. So they were both teenagers when they married. They were about 19 and 18 when my big brother uh, was born. I'm the second in the family out of nine. So we grew up in a, in a very, uh, very active, very mischievous, uh, in some ways dysfunctional as the years pass, as tragedies hit our family. My parents were divorced at one point, and my brother, just a couple of years younger than I, was 
was uh, killed in Vietnam when he was 18. And that was pretty much uh, the, the down, the beginning of the decline of my mom as far as her health, her spirit, her zest for life was concerned. So numerous things happened. But I, I was very, very fortunate in that I always loved school. While my brothers were extroverts and getting into mischief and, you know, skipping classes and getting in trouble with a truant officer and, and you know, just having fun. I, I was just a, a stodgy old person who loved to read, who loved to be in my room locked up, you know, doing homework and studying. So that, that may have been my quote, quote, salvation from a, a family life that, you know, had quite a few bumps in the road. Out of the nine children in my family, I think all of them were high school dropouts, except for about four of us. And uh, I was the very first person in my family to get a college education, to, to earn a college degree. My mother was always very, very proud of that. I think uh, she vicariously earned her college degree through me because she had always loved school too, but life intervened and she had to get married and have a bunch of kids. I am a, an American Latina, a fifth generation American. I grew up in a very poor Latino neighborhood uh, in Kingsville. So it was not par for the course back in the early 1960s for Latinas for girls to finish high school, number one, necessarily, and then number two, to go on to college. So I was somewhat of an anomaly in my neighborhood and my family groups and my family clan, so to speak. But that that's, that's what made me choose a different path in life, made me leave the city. I got a degree. I met my husband in college. Uh, we fell in love, uh, got married, both graduated and had a little baby and then and we left uh, Texas for I mean for better things at that point Texas was like the the next to the bottom of the United States in teacher salaries and we had both trained to be high school teachers me in English and he in math and California at that time was the top of a nation in teacher salaries and teacher well-being and perks and benefits and whatnot so we came out west, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. We started our careers. You know, we had a son. We have a daughter, and it everything everything turned out well. And I, I credit it all to schooling, the the wonderful teachers I had, and uh, even though it was a poor, dusty little town, the educational system was good. And, uh, and I love it. And I learned my, my, my love for writing and literature in high school. I had teachers who taught wonderful literature, had the most wonderful discussions in class. They required us to memorize poetry, memorize some sonnets. I even remember them to this day. And uh, to write stories, to get up in front of the class and read out a, a creative piece of writing. And, and that's where it started. And so I majored in English in college, and that just kept increasing and enhancing. And as a high school teacher for 16 years here in Pasadena, California, I was able to continue my love of reading a lot about literature and invest, you know, doing research and doing all these things with my students to stimulate their love of the literary arts. So whew, that was a long way. <laughs> I think I think that's a, a, a book length description. My apologies. No, that's a that's a great description, and thank you for sharing your story. Because I think, like I said, where we've been 
that plays a significant role in who we are. So I think all those experiences that you had growing up in a, like you said, a small town in, in Texas, you know, really kind of paved the way for your career and paved the way for your, your love of literature that continues to this day. So I think it's an important story to tell. Well, thank you. As an author, who were some of your early writing influences, fiction or nonfiction or poetry? Well, I loved other genres. I oftentimes navigated to short stories and to poetry as a high school student and actually as a teacher as well. I taught American literature, which is an 11th and 12th grade course for many, many, many years, much of my career. So those were my favorite genres. Emily Dickinson was and remains one of my favorite authors to this day. You know, Sarah Teasdale, you know, Langston Hughes is one of my favorites. Uh, Just a a diversity. But, you know, one of the things about what we were learning when I was a teacher, I'm thinking right now of our American literature anthology that we used in class. It was big. It was a hardback book, easily about four inches thick, hundreds of pages, American literature from the very beginning of our nation to, I don't know, the 60s or whenever that book was published. And I was struck, I was amazed at how absolutely homogeneous it was. There were very few women authors in it out of all those hundreds of pages and hardly anything, probably a handful of pieces of writing at that time that were written by ethnic minority authors of of any. I think there was one piece by a Native American, you know, Native American hymns or something uh, in, in the early early literature of our nation. And there might have been uh, two or three pieces by some of our Black authors. And there was not a single piece of writing in that entire anthology that was by a Hispanic, as the term was back then, or a Latino author of either sex throughout the entire history of our literature. I thought that was very, very uh, limiting. I I was shocked by that. So uh, as a teacher, I brought in my own, I mean, I did my own research. I've learned who the top Latino American authors were, who who the top Black American authors were, uh, Asian American authors, more Native American authors. And I, on my own, would copy, uh, you know, Xeroxing, the Xerox of that day was called a mimeograph machine. And I would make copies of their poems, of their literature. I would buy paperback books, used books, and bring them into class so I could teach a representative sample from different cultures and different perspectives. I, I don't know anyone else who was doing that. I was a rookie teacher. I didn't discuss it with anyone. But uh, once I did that, then, of course, I learned about other authors from other cultures. So uh, it, was, uh, it was tough at first, but my authors span the cultures, they span the generations, and definitely men and women authors. Well, that diversity is so critical, and it sounds like it was very important to you to have those voices taught in your classroom in comparison to the anthology, like you said, that did not represent that point of view and those experiences. Yes. So you've written six books. Uh, You started out with a collection of short stories and then published poetry chapbooks and now have several full-length poetry collections. How do you think these different mediums allow you to express your creativity 
And do you feel a greater connection to either poetry or prose? Well, uh, you know, it's uh, as you say, my, my, my first published book, I, I had been, by the way, throughout my teaching career, which started in 1970 and went through 1986, uh, my high school teaching career, I, I was publishing things. I was publishing short stories here and there, publishing uh, nonfiction, uh, editorials in newspapers, poems here and there, j- just one-shot things, you know, uh, and it was my dream to someday write a book and to write multiple books, but I had to wait until I literally retired officially from my career in order to do this. So in 2009 was my first short story book. And I think it was telling that my very first book that I chose to do was a collection of short stories. So at that time, my whole heart was, was in short story writing. And I still love it, but I have not published another short story book since then. And I've published and edited. I've also edited one, two, three, three or four poetry, mostly poetry anthologies. So right now I'm leaning more toward poetry. I spend more time with it. My network includes more poets than prose writers, even though I, I, I'm, I'm lucky to know wonderful, wonderful authors in, in every genre. So it, it's, it's poetry right now, but I still have a almost finished manuscript of short stories that I hope to someday uh, finish, dust off, and see if that can see the light of day. But those are my two favorites by far. Talking about poetry, I consider it to be the most personal and expressive forms of art for me personally. And I know that you've used this art to express yourself during times of sadness. Your latest collection, Dearest Papa, is about the life and passing of your husband. Yes. So how did poetry and writing this memoir help you through this period and reconnect with Victor? Uh, that's a wonderful question. And I think throughout my life, uh, as I say, sporadically, I always you know, wrote and published sporadically. It, when something happened, when my brother was killed in Vietnam, when my grandparents died, when my father died of a heart attack at the age of 49, you know, Crises always somehow sent me to my notebook, though this is pre-computer, a lot of this stuff. And and I always found solace in poetry. I always found that uh, venting, writing poetry, no matter what style, how long, how good, how bad, uh, it was very cathartic for me. So it, it was a go-to. And I've also al- always believed, uh, James, that poets are first responders in society, and of course, now we have frontliners and we have real first responders during the pandemic. But I, I do believe, and I'm not the only one, um, I read a wonderful article the other day from the New York Times about, it was called Thank God for the Poets, and it was lauding the ubiquity of poetry in civilization, especially in times of crises and times of you know monumental episodes. And I believe that. So when my husband died very suddenly in minor surgery, outpatient surgery in 2018, that was the most cataclysmic thing that had ever hit hit me because we had been married a few months before that. We had celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Life was good. We had all kinds. In fact, we had a dinner date that, that night. We had all kinds of plans. Life was going around along great. And all of a sudden, I came home that day by myself for the first time in 50 years. And it was, it was a cataclysm. 
And so I knew that to honor my husband, he had been a long-term educator here in Pasadena for 36 years. Uh, He was much beloved. He was a championship uh, high school athletics coach, wonderful math teacher, just much beloved. I knew that I I needed to pay tribute to him, to his life, to what he meant to us. Our three grandchildren just absolutely adored him. They, they adored him and they still do. So I knew I had to commemorate his life, to talk about him, to get others to know about what a good, wonderful, love-filled, joy-filled person he had been. You know, no one's perfect, but he had been a very, very good, meaningful human being in, in our society, in our sphere. And uh, so do a memoir but I think the fact that I chose to do a memoir and poems versus a typical prose biographical type memoir is also telling of, of the importance that poetry has to me and its uh, wonderful usefulness in dealing with, with the hard topics. So that was, it was very, very helpful. I started that book literally about two weeks after he died. And I spent the entire first year of my widowhood, I took it all up. Uh, The book goes until the anniversary of his death. And uh, it was published, uh, you know, soon after that came out in early 2020. So uh, it, it it was a way to express the hard stuff, the inexpressible stuff, the painful stuff. It was very painful to write at many times, but it, it forced me to reflect upon his life. It forced me to reminisce about many important, fun events, small and large. And uh, I, I just think that poetry somehow can do that better. It's like a camera taking little pictures of things that count instead of writing out long paragraphs that, you know, might not capture the, the spontaneity of the moment. No, that's a great description of both the passing of your husband, as well as turning to poetry as a, as a form to honor him and as a tribute to him. It's interesting to hear about that poetry was a lot more appropriate for the thoughts that you had and and the memories that you wanted to relive as opposed to the kind of a more of a long form pro style. That's really interesting to hear. So thank you for sharing that. I know it's a very personal story to you. And so I appreciate you sharing it. Thank you for your comments. So you've been a high school administrator. You've been a high school teacher. You've been a professor at Cal State LA and Cal Poly Pomona, writing consultant and an award-winning author. And you also served as Poet Laureate in Altadena for several years. But in 2014, you founded Pasadena-based Golden Foothills Press, which is a small independent publisher. Why did you feel it was important to do that? And how is Golden Foothills Press different than other publishers? Well, uh, we're a very small operation. I have uh, two part-time assistants. You know, so... So even even uh, on the scale of a small, actually the the, the proper name for for my type of press is micro indie, but it is a literary book press. Literary, we we do not publish how to books. We don't publish about how to you know, psychological upheavals or how to paint your house. You know, we, it's strictly literary. So we deal with poetry, with fiction, with nonfiction, and we actually have uh, in our I call it our stable of, of books or our stable of authors. We have 
all, all those genres represented. So we we are we are very curated, I, I guess. Other indie lit micro presses that I know aren't quite as selective. Sometimes I, I, I think the word is limited. I, I say to myself sometimes, uh, you should be producing more Thelma. I mean, we issue about two or three books a year, which actually is one of, part of the definition. It fits within the definition of a micro-indie book press. So, but but I'm, I'm very, very careful about what we publish because I believe strongly in diversity of our authors. And you'll see that especially in, in the three or four anthologies that our press has issued representing probably close to 200 different poets from across America, not just in California. You'll see the, a huge diversity of, of authors generationally, ethnically, linguistically, immigrants, children of immigrants, uh, poet laureates, professors, academics, you know, just the whole spectrum of people in America. And I'm very proud of that. And I believe that focusing on a story that is important to tell, whatever the book is about, the, the quality of the writing, the, the devotion and the quality of the authors, because I develop a very close working relationships with my colleagues, with my partners in, in, in the publication of these books. So that, that's basically how the, how the press is right now. We are planning to issue three books this year, one actually probably in late May. You know, so that'll bring our total count to about a dozen, uh, a dozen books so far in, in a six-year period. We might step it up. You know, one of the greatest things, James, and I know it's not your question, so pardon me for kind of taking a little, uh, you know, digression at this point, but, but I think it's an important point. One of the greatest things that I like about being an author, even though I'm not, I'm not rich and I'm not famous, <laughs> but, but I certainly love being an author and doing all these author things. Um, and one of the greatest joys that it has brought into my life is the network of people, the community of people whom I have come to know because of being an author, you know, going to events, going to book readings, book festivals, doing Zooms, uh, you know, collaborating, doing anthologies, editing, all of these things. And the authors and publishers, because I know at least a half a dozen other indie book publishers. And I do have to say, I think they all focus on diversity because I think, you know, we're here in Southern Cal or in Texas, one of the authors and publishers I know is in Texas. So I don't want to make it sound like no one else is doing this. But it, it, it's just the, the people out there who are really into these notions of representativeness and quality and hard work. And, and uh, I, I am just so lucky that I, in my network, I, I've got that's, that's who I have in my network. They are gems in my life. That's very well said. Since 2014, we've seen the written word change a little bit. We've seen an explosion in social media. We've seen kind of the demise of the blogs, but increasing uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. How do you view these kind of new platforms? And what do you think the state is of the written word uh, in the context of these social media platforms? You know, I, I think it's, it's a, you know, the, the proverbial double-edged sword. When we think on the downside of it, obviously, is the 
the proliferation of misinformation, the proliferation on, on the so-called dark web and other places of racist, hate-filled, dangerous things uh, that threaten not just our democracy, but uh, foment unrest and, and danger all over the world. So that aspect of the access to the printed word, the written word, and anyone can say something and it'll be broadcast, so to speak, internationally, because that is what the internet does. That aspect, I think, is extremely disturbing. And I hope that uh, our global civilization can somehow figure out how to minimize that, how to clamp down on that. Freedom of speech is fantastic. And the internet, by the way, I think has, has allowed much more of that. But that is a downside that a lot of the negativity that we didn't hear about or read about that wasn't in your face as much in past decades now is in your face. And uh, it, dangerous things like the Capitol riots and supposedly, you know, the, they were facilitated through the use of the Internet. But I think by and large, the Internet has enabled Presses like the Golden Foothills Press and all the other wonderful ones I know in, in different parts of the country to be born. Because throughout, before, before the internet, and I'm not a historian by any means, and I am definitely not a techie by any means, but this is my simplistic understanding. Before the internet, people published through traditional publishing houses, you know, some of them big and famous, Harcourt Brace, Scribner and Sons, uh, you, you know them. And, and others that were lesser, but, but still, they were the publishing houses. You had to send in queries. You had to send in manuscripts. You had to wait you know, months to hear. You had to keep that process up for a year or more before your book, let us say, let's focus on books, got to see the light of day. So they were the gatekeepers. The major publishing houses and the editors within them were the gatekeepers for for our history. And they were not models of representativeness. And I'm not saying that that was their fault or that was a terror. That's just how it was. And still, by the way, the publishing houses that still exist are not very diverse and representative of the greater society. So gatekeeping, that, that uh, setup, whether by, by design or just by the luck of the draw, the misluck of the draw, there were a lot of voices that never went expressed to the level as other voices were. Black writers, uh, Latino writers, uh, Asian American, Indian, Muslim, whatever. Diversity was not being expressed because the gatekeeping was strong. They had commercial considerations. They had to always think about the bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. The internet freed us from that. Uh, now we have POD books, print on demand. Now all of us can print our books if we wish. Little presses like myself that could never have been able to afford a traditional printing press or a factory or a big building to do it all. Now we can do this work from our yards. Uh, heck, uh, the Pushcart Prize, which is one of the most uh, prominent uh, American prizes for literary excellence in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, started literally in an eight-foot by eight-foot backyard garden shed. And supposedly, the, the person who is in, in, still in charge of the Pushcart Foundation supposedly still has that shed and still works out of it, and volunteers. So 
a lot of a lot of factors, but the important thing is that the gatekeepers now did not control everything, and so printing on demand allowed the publication on a mass scale to to shift to change. It opened up the the doors to to many many different ways, many different voices being able to express ourselves themselves, and uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. You've talked about some of the unrest that we've seen this past year and some of the things that have gone on, the pandemic being one of them, capital riots being another. At such a time in our country when diversity has been used to both unite and divide people, what role do you think the arts and Golden Hills Press in particular can play in furthering these important forces? And, and that's a wonderful question. And, and I, I do see it that way as well about the unifying and the dividing. I mean, it is, it's one of the greatest uh, tragedies, I think, in, in our nation that we're at this crossroads that we have so many reasons to celebrate and to unite and to just keep on building on, on all the wonderful, wonderful productivity and, and ways that our society, our civilization has been enriched through diversity worldwide. But yet there are the dividers, the haters, the racists. I think that despite that, despite those dividers, and we saw them on January 6th, we saw too many of them on January the 6th. But but I think that despite that, the arts have been very, very successful in many different methods, in many iterations, artistic, musical, performance-wise, books, all kinds of writings, podcasts, uh, you know, communications in their various forms. I think that the arts have been instrumental in holding us together you know, keeping us united and keeping us diverse and allowing us, our diverse voices, to to be expressed uh, side by side, equally important. Um, for example, Zooms, you know, Zooms now are the bookstores and the libraries, uh, the reading events and the festivals, the book festivals that authors used to have to come together to celebrate as a community, to read one another's works, to be in workshops and panels, to talk about literature and their creations. And of course, now uh, we don't have that because of the pandemic. And so Zoom and other forms of electronic podcasts, as we're doing here, have stepped in to fill that void. But I think the Artistic influences, if anything, are growing. Artistic methods and vehicles are expanding, are morphing in a very positive way. And I think that uh, even when we go back, quote, go back post-pandemic, that a lot of these new means of getting together uh, electronically, uh, so to speak, are still going to to be around and, and may they flourish. Uh, and I think I think it, it's uh, it's another expression of the amazing resilience that our people, and, and by our people I mean all humanity, because we've all had to to figure out not just how to try to survive this pandemic, but but how to conduct our lives in in ways that that still bring food to our table or that keep us safe. And I think that that the fact that Zooms were invented and, and are being used to for birthday parties, for TV watching, cartoon watching by little children across America. I've seen ads about that. It is it's wonderful. And it's not it's not a replacement for the face-to-face, human-to-human. We're in the room together. We're breaking bread together. But it is, I think, a, a very understandable, useful 
replacement substitute, and uh, and it, it just speaks to the resilience of of our people, of people, and finding new ways to hang on to that human connectedness. Because I think whether we verbalize it or not, I think that all of us realize that the most important thing in life, no matter where you are on this planet, is human, the human connection, and uh, you know being good to one another, helping out one another. Humans and and our interactions are the most important thing, I believe. Well, I think that's a a perfect segue to my next question, which is your most recent projects is an anthology titled When the Virus Came Calling, which features poetry and prose inspired by COVID. How did this anthology come about and what did you learn from the writers and poets whose work you featured? Oh, thank you for asking about that. Yes, uh, uh, in 2020, I, I mentioned that that's when uh, when I issued my my memoir about my husband called Dearest Papa, because all of us, starting with the grandkids, called him Papa, a memoir and poems. But later, uh, seven months later, uh, our press issued the when the virus came calling. So sometime in February, as we were learning a little bit more, despite uh, some political attempts at snuffing out any information and distorting information and trying to keep it all undercover, we were, our nation was learning more and more about this. And it, it, it became evident, pretty evident already by February, that we were about to be hit with a terrifying terrifying, deadly disaster. And so I started reading more and more about it, informing myself about it. And I got the idea that, you know, this year we're about to to face a calamity that is unforeseen. And everyone was saying a hundred years ago was the last time this happened to us. So I thought about, again, with the belief in mind that Poets and, and, and other writers, too, are oftentimes the first responders. They're the ones who document calamity the best of anyone, better than photographers, better than the TV journalists with the microphones in their hands, even though they're all important. But, but writers are there. And um, so I, I wanted to, um, to bring writers together as the disease was invading our nation or had invaded our nation and as we were about to face Lord knows what calamity and disasters as the as the year wore on. So in early March, so I, I, I got the idea to to put together an anthology. So I say this was like my fourth anthology. So I felt very comfortable with the concept uh, and with editing. I, uh, all of these anthologies I've mentioned, uh, the Altadena Poetry Review, uh, to you know three three versions of that and. This particular one, uh, I was the the sole editor of that. Um, so I thought about this. I said I'm going to handpick poets and other authors that I know or that I've heard of that are reputable, that are experienced, that are good, that are diverse, that are from different parts of our country. I'm going to invite them to go on this journey with me. And so in March, I started sending out emails, uh, personal invitations to 50, 50 hand-picked authors from across the nation that I knew or that I had recently heard about and read about. I am so happy to say that 45 said, yes, 
let's do this. I want to participate. I'll send you my work. And so, and I, I became the 46th author. Um, I, I included some of my own poetry in this book. So the, the goal was, the mission was anything that you, that you are writing as this pandemic is unfolding, we are going to document, I set myself a timeline. Uh, we are going to document the first seven months of this pandemic as it is unfolding on our shores. I, I needed to keep it limited. I know the whole world was suffering. We could see the suffering of the world already, but I wanted to focus on the American experience with it. And uh, so they sent me writings as they were doing them. So it was an evolving thing. So I like to think of it as we were documenting the epidemic in real time, as we were living it, as we were reading about it, as we were learning from others what was happening. And uh, so the, the, their, their work was sent in. I gave them several months to do this, and I put it together over the summer, and the book was issued in late September. So, so that's where the seven-month count comes in. And uh, I also believed that there would be a slew of books were going to be coming out about this, but a lot of them would be after the fact, you know, the armchair quarterback, looking back on it. I felt that it would be more vivid, more authentic, more of a true first, you know, a, a witness observation, original research, whatever the terms are, if it was happening, if these writings were occurring you know, as these experiences were being lived. So, so that's what the book does. And um, these writers are just absolutely fantastic. Young, old, uh, immigrants, children of immigrants, uh, black, brown, Asian, whatever, whatever level of diversity you can think of. I, there's somebody in there representing that. And they, uh, it's just a stunning collection. I divided the book chronologically, basically, into about five sections, and each one is, is uh, you know, the, the very beginning, and then as it got worse in April, as New York was suffering, and as the months go by and the death count keeps going up, uh, I'm very proud of the work that our, that our authors did on this. Well, congratulations about the book, first and foremost. Thank you. Yeah, I thought that in the closing minutes that we have together, that education has been in a really important piece in your life. Yes. Uh, both growing up as well as being a teacher yourself. You know, I wanted to share a story about that from my personal life. In high school, I was incredibly drawn to poetry. You know, I think I was introduced to it as a sophomore and just kind of fell in love with it. And I had a wonderful teacher my junior year that helped me create my own class focused on poetry because my high school didn't offer one. So I had an independent study with him. Uh, over the course of the year. And it was an incredible experience. And to this day, I've lugged my 2,000-page Norton Anthology of Poetry with me almost everywhere I've gone, uh, just because uh, it's been uh, a source of inspiration to me. It's been a source of comfort to me. And I, I think fondly on that experience. But it was funny because when I went to college, we all had literary requirements that we had to take classes in. And class in poetry was offered. And I figured I was really comfortable with poetry. You know, I'd studied it for quite some time. I had some great teachers in high school. I thought this is a perfect next step. And I found that it was probably one of the, the worst classes that I've taken. <laughs> and, but I think it was, it was critically important because it, it really showed me the difference in a good teacher versus a bad teacher and how 
if you have a teacher that's really passionate about the subject, you absorb that. And it sounds like from what you've told and shared with us that the voices and the poetry that you share with your students, because of your passion, that was transferred to your students. And I hope that that was a source of inspiration to, to them. And so with, with that in mind, you know, as a teacher, as an editor, as a publisher, how do we educate and encourage the next generation of poets and writers? I think teachers are absolutely, and of course I'm biased in this, my husband being a teacher, and there's a lot of teachers in my extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles. Uh, my daughter is a university professor, so uh, definitely another, another type of teacher. But I, I truly believe that teachers are uh, among the most important people on this planet. You cannot have civilization without people being educated, however it is, formally and formally. And it, it's just amazing. So uh, I, I love teachers, and, and I, I think that, that uh, they are hugely under undervalued. I think that they should be at the top of the, <laughs> of the hierarchy and the hedge fund managers and that they should be further on down uh, because who are the frontline responders? Uh, I didn't hear anyone from uh, the New York Stock Exchange up there on the list as the essential workers that we all had during this pandemic. But yes, teachers, a, a good teacher, a bad teacher, and I'm just using the terms very generically, very loosely here, a, a teacher who cares about inspiring his or her students who really puts the, the blood, sweat, and tears into the work because oftentimes teaching is, it, it is one of the greatest labors of love that there is because it's certainly the compensation and the perks are, are not always there. But it carries immense, immense power in, in shaping the lives, the minds, the hearts, and ultimately the lives, the futures of everyone that they come in contact with as their students. And uh, yes, one good teacher can make wonderful changes in the world indirectly through his or her teaching. And sadly, um, in my long life and my long educational career, I knew of, of too many of too many people, and one is actually too many in my mind, who damaged a lot of a lot of kids, uh, who who hurt people, who hurt people deeply with with their reckless handling of this important job. So yes, it, we, we, need, we need to have that inspiration. And I think that even whether it's uh, inspiring other authors, I think just sharing our passion, as you, as you saw with that first teacher, just their love and their passion and everything they did and said and shared with you, you could see the benefit you could see it. It's not always measurable, but yes, we we authors have a responsibility to the new generations coming up, to everyone who wants, who dreams of being an author, to everyone who has something to say that is of, of some value to our society. All of us as authors, we need to be supportive of that and uh, and do everything we can to facilitate the, the authentic expression, the heartfelt expression of every voice that, that, that wants to express something. When you look back, and maybe this will be kind of our, our closing question, that when you look back on your storied career, and I don't want to make you feel old, that's not what I'm intending. <laughs> no, actually, the word that jumped out at me is storied, and I said, my, that he's being very kind. Very oh, I'll generous. use it again. So 
when you look back on your storied career in education and as a writer, as a publisher, you know, and you think back on that little girl in school, is there one thing that you would like to go back and tell her while she's holed up in that room, like you said, reading that story or doing that homework, if you were able to go back to Kingsville growing up? Oh, that's such a such a beautiful question. And, and perhaps my answer is going to seem like it's a cop out. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do it justice, to, you know, to your beautiful question. But but I would say to her, don't give up. Do not lose your your hope. Don't give up on your dreams. You're on the right path. Just enjoy what you're doing. Continue doing it. And uh, and, and I think that's that's what's what's important. I knew a number of, of young women in my hometown who were promising scholars and they allowed themselves or they were derailed some way or another. I was fortunate. Uh, I, I hadn't said this yet, but I do need to say it. I was fortunate that my mother, who, as I say, dropped out of school to get married and, and have nine children, uh, even though that may not have been in the initial plan, but that's what the result was of their marriage. I was fortunate that she understood. She saw my love of learning. She saw my love of reading, and she understood it. And she not only understood it, she fostered it. She nurtured it. And she, for instance, we'd be out shopping at a store or something, and, and she, she would it always uh, it always embarrassed me to know it, but she would be bragging about me as a as a as a good student. Oh, well, my little girl Telmita, which is the, like Billy for Bill, Telmita for Thelma. My little girl just got straight A's on her report card, and I mean, just innocuous ways and events where she would show genuinely that she took joy in my accomplishments and in my joy of learning. And uh, she was like that to the bitter end. I mean, she always supported a degree. I, I have four university degrees. And she would tell people, she doesn't just have one or two or three, which is strange enough for a Latina at that era. But, you know, and, and it was always so embarrassing to me. And, but But when I look back on it now, she was fostering. She was nurturing. She was supporting in her own way, the only way that she knew of my pursuit of learning. And uh, and so I, I give her huge, huge credit for my successes. And I would tell that little girl, you know, you're lucky that you have a mom who wants you to, to soar. I knew a lot of moms who took their girls out of school so they could help with a home home chores or childcare or go get married and start having kids. My mom wanted a scholar and she did everything she could to, to smooth that path for me. So don't give up hope. Once you see that something is your passion and you see it as what you want to do, pursue it and have faith and confidence in it. Very well said. The, the book is Dearest Papa a memoir in poems, in addition to being a beautiful tribute to Victor, has received critical attention and was a Book Excellence Awards finalist. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Dearest Papa and When the Virus Came Calling can be purchased on Golden Foothills Press's website, but you can also get it at great bookstores such as Vroman's where, where it's available. And with that, 
Thelma, thank you so much for coming on the show and being generous with your time. It's been wonderful hearing your stories and I look forward to all the stories to come. Oh, thank you so much, James. It's been my pleasure to to chat with you, to get to know you, and congratulations on this important work that you're doing with your with your podcasting. and And I look forward to more success for you. Again, my many thanks to Thelma for coming on the show. If you are interested in learning more about Thelma's work and to purchase her books, please visit goldenfoothillspress.com or wherever books are sold, but please consider supporting your local bookshop if you can. I will provide links in the episode description and notes on the show's website. And thank you for listening. If you are a business owner or community leader and want to share your story, please let me know as I would love to learn more about you and have you on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, and several other platforms. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show so that others can find it. I welcome your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at crowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crowncitypodcast. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast. And until next time, please remember to stay well, stay positive, And as always, see you around town.